Hello and welcome to the Circlos Podcast, Maria and Evan, back to kick off season two of the podcast with our first guest. So without further ado, I will let you introduce yourself and just take it away. Hi, Maria. Hi, Evan. Uh, I'm Peter Bernakis. I live in Montreal. Um, from a professional perspective, I am an accountant and I work in the aviation industry. Um, aside that, anyone that does know me knows that my love and my passion is Greek tradition, both from a dance and from a music perspective. Um, I would say I have a fairly typical story for most, at least in my younger years, um, starting off with dance. Montreal is a very, has a very large Greek community, um, somewhere in about 80 to 100,000 Greeks. Uh, it's not uncommon to see that there's many silohi um, representing different parts of uh, Greece. I particularly um, have ancestry from the Peloponnese on my mom's side, uh, from the villages of Selassia and Karia Sarakova uh, in Laconia, and on my dad's side uh, from the town of Leonisio in the southern Arcadia, uh, and one of the towns that are known to be part of the group of Tsakonian villages. So a lot of history there. Um, I started off uh, dancing, I would say, probably through Greek school. Uh, a lot of our dance programs uh, are integrated within the Greek curriculums on the Saturday schools or the after-school programs. Uh, we do also have a number of day schools that also have Greek dance as part of those curriculums. A lot of our parents take us to our local Siloji on the weekends as well. And there are a number of uh, independent dance groups within the city as well one of which I've been a part of for about 20 years now, that's La Troupe Folklorique Grec Sirtaki. Um, probably like a lot of kids, I started dancing by force. Uh, it wasn't anything that I particularly wanted to do. Um, I did get to see more of my friends, my Greek friends uh, through the activity. So that continued to about to the time I finished elementary school. As I started middle school and high school, uh, that's when dance started taking a more prominent role in my hobbies and my day-to-day -day life. Um, if I wasn't studying or, or doing anything pertaining to school, uh, I was probably learning to uh, trying to learn Nutalinia for Cretan or, or working on my Tsamiko solo, um, just because it was something that I really enjoyed. Um, same thing with music. Music I actually got into a lot later in life. Uh, I probably picked up the Lauto at around 19 or 20 years old. Um, pretty funny because as I could remember um, in my childhood, my dad would be playing clarina in the background and I'd be like, okay, turn that off, turn that off. <laughs> uh, but it's just funny how life finds a way and you end up going back to certain things at later points in your life. Um, so at about 13, 14 years old, I started dancing with La Troupe Sirtaki. Uh, at that point in time with their youth group, uh, eventually joined the big group. And um, a few key things happened along the way that um, I'll say helped for me uh, into the dancer, director, instructor, researcher that I am. Um, the first and foremost uh, event was probably in about, it was in preparation for a 2002 show, um, which began in 2001, whereby uh, our dance group with the direction of uh, another instructor in the city who recently passed away, Dimitri Zodzi or Taki Zodzi, mm -hmm. uh, as many people knew him, um, was preparing a show at our largest theater uh, that created uh, an abundance of exposure to a number of regions. Um, at the time, I, if I remember correctly, we were representing between 16 to 18 different regions in the show. 
obviously certain things got cut along the way you put more focus on others but it, it was a great uh, exposure uh, from a dance perspective and at the same time I could say it was the first real uh, introduction that I had to live music with musicians from Greece and that's to see an entire ensemble of musicians. Um, the Silogi dances here typically would bring like a Clarino or a Cretan Dira. Well, the Cretans are more adamant at bringing entire groups, uh, mm-hmm. but usually the the, the mainland-based uh, Silogi would bring only a Clarino. So you wouldn't see a Lauto, you wouldn't see a Defi. And uh, with that show, we had the privilege of having Nico Filippisi and his band come down. Mm-hmm. So that was my first... Uh, uh, contact with them and, and it, mm-hmm. obviously it became like a mentorship and a, a teacher-student relationship obviously with Costa on the Lauto. Um, so that was a very big, uh, had a very big impact on my life uh, as a dancer. Uh, another show occurred in 2004 again with the same musicians. There were some changes uh, I think between the first and the second. The first time we had Kiriako Guveda on the violin, the second time with Yorgo Marinaki, another good friend and fellow musician. And um, from there on out, uh, began taking what I learned there, began backtracking on it, seeing, okay, I understand what I'm doing, but where did it come from? And what do I have to support what I'm doing? And based on what we're doing and what one person was able to show me, what further can I find? So that led me down a huge rabbit hole. (laughs) Um, Started attending seminars. Um, Over time, started chairing one here in Montreal, La Grafia Hellenic Cultural Conference, and um, just enjoying everything I do with the tradition. Um, I think I'm very grateful and, and very blessed to live in a city that our tradition is very vibrant and living. Um, that is to say that I can go to a Thessalian dance and people will be dancing Sigatista, Beratia, uh, their local Tsamika. Uh, the same thing with the Ipirotes, same with the Macedonian, so on and so forth. So that exposure is just like tremendous. And I, I'm, I just feel very blessed for it. Um, aside that, I, I would want to highlight one other thing. And that is that during my time in high school, I also took dance, a side Greek dance, that is to say uh, jazz, ballet, and modern dance within the mm-hmm. curriculum that I had uh, at my high school. Um, again, initially there, I, I got thrown into that by chance. I wanted to take music, but the classes were full. Uh, got stuck in dance as it was my second choice, but truly um, grew an appreciation for the arts and learned a lot about dance from a staging um, and, and presentation perspective that maybe wasn't as a focal within Greek dance groups in the community. So I, I always think it's interesting when we talk to people that have both the music and the dance kind of passion. Um, would you say that when you started learning instruments and all the, the music behind it, would you say that your uh, perspective of the dances changed at all? Would Did it have def- any impact on it? Definitely. Um, it had an impact also to appreciate the culture of every area um more for what it was uh, and if i can just take an example in the beginning when i was younger uh one of the first things that i dove into was cretan yeah um cretan's very vibrant it's very quick it's very energetic it's very easy to get into when you're a teenager <laughs> uh, it's also something that you think okay i can impress a lot of girls doing something interesting with this while dancing <laughs> um over time um 
there were other areas that when I started getting to the musicality or even with regards to the singing and not to say that I'm any great singer of, of the sort, but it's interesting that you can look back on it, reflect on the region and start seeing it with a different light. And I do, I do find that over time, I have gone back, revisited regions, um, both from a musical perspective, from a dance perspective, uh, and from a, a singing perspective, and grown a different appreciation for them. Uh, there where, for example, something was super simple or a lot of sirta were being danced. And an example of that is in uh, Asia Minor. A lot of sirta, a lot of Bali, especially on the, uh, the coastal area of Eritrea. It wasn't anything that really spoke to me previously, but over time, understanding the music, understanding how it got documented and passed on, I've grown a different appreciation for it. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's, I would venture to say, I mean, most kids grow up learning a dance to a certain song and you don't have this understanding of just how deep the music is and the stories that they tell. And all right, that you might do the same dance to, 20 different songs, but each song is so unique in its own right that it's almost, it almost makes a dance individual in itself because the songs tell the stories and especially like when you're talking Crete and Matinadas and all that, because it's just. Yeah. Um, so what's really interesting Evan, is actually when I was in Greek school and finishing off like my collegial studies, I remember having the discussion with one of my professors and starting to say, listen, it's great all the history that we cover and all the Fidiskeftika, so on and so forth. Why don't we take a look at the, I'll say, the poetic aspect of lyrics that were written in the last 100 or 200 years and seeing how that relates to the language and mm -hmm. how we can learn Greek through that. So I started looking at different ways to implement the use or approach the topic of paradosi. Mm -hmm. through different mediums that's so that's so cool because it's such a way probably also to see um, other influences on greek culture so like italian influence or um you know even you could say turkish you're going to see that those words that yep. lexicon reflected in the way people spoke so um i think that's just when people you know look deeper than surface level is when you can really start to kind of dig up the history that probably fuels you know more than than what meets the eye i think that's that's so cool and for someone who's like a little bit of a language nerd before i became a nurse that was like <laughs> my jam um still sort of is um i think that stuff is so interesting like how you know certain words are used in certain areas or in certain contexts um, and they mean something totally different if you pull them out of that context you know what i mean um, totally. Um, actually, I took a couple of courses as my electives in university in anthropology and sociology yeah. to better understand how different groups can impact others in language, culture, dance, mm -hmm. uh, and even with the transmission of melodies uh, and mm. kinetic movements uh, through dance. Oh, that's so cool. That's really cool. So this was something that came up a lot. We, we were just in Arizona for the, the Psyche conference there. Um, and Barados,i kept coming up about, you know, how does that play into dance and what we're teaching? Because there's two schools of thought where, you know, you teach the traditional, traditional way as far back as you can, you know, date it. And that's the right way. And then there's the other school of thought that 
All right, Greek dance is a traditional, it's a tradition passed down, but it evolves over time. And you can't just pick out, you know, 1905 and this is the right way to do the dance. Well, the dance evolved over the last hundred years. And okay, maybe in 1905, they held their hands this way. But in today's day, like, this is the common way to do it. So it's that conversation. I mean, I, I'm that's probably a debate that will never be settled on. But talking about music and Barabasi and how like recent times and the lyrics and all that has adapted to what I mean, it's got to tell today's story too, as much as it's telling the traditions. That's my opinion. So I think that's a very big rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> I'm, I'm more than glad to, uh, to, to chime in on it. Yeah, um, please do. I definitely think that tradition is living um it's it's again it's very vibrant and it is authentic to every single one of us mm. um i think that we have to accept certain i'll say these are factual things that is that the way something was done in the past is representative of the people that expressed themselves through that at that time mm -hmm. it may no longer represent what the reality is in that area today but it's not to say that anything is right or wrong at the point in time when it's a point of self-expression because mm -hmm. at the end of the day as communities um, within Greece they've had exposure to other communities there is internet they see beyond <laughs> the borders of Greece so obviously there there will be an impact and, and I think it's interesting to say that okay, up until the point in time before there was commercialization or tourism in a specific area, this is what we saw and we were able to justify with facts and documentation. And then over time, we've seen these changes that have arisen. Mm -hmm. And obviously as instructors, it's great if we're able to convey all that information. And then I think what's lacking with a lot of groups and within my community here and throughout North America, because I do work with a lot of different groups, it's that everything is relative. If you convey what you are presenting and when what you are presenting based on in what time period, there is a relevance for it. Yeah. There is an authenticity to it. Mm -hmm. um, I take, for example, um, if I look at the dances of Cadiz Laconia, where my grandmother's from, I, I learned those dances from her. Mm -hmm. My grandmother left in the 60s what is being done today and how people move and express themselves in the village today may differ from how my grandmother did back then when she was younger mm -hmm. and and that's okay it, it really is okay it's just another source of information mm -hmm. to better understand the history of both the dances the songs and how the customs and um, the, the dance field worked uh in in that city or town yeah and i mean you can equate that to kind of other things too like it, it happens look at how like the bible is translated you know what i mean like look at how certain words have changed even you know um oh gosh i'm gonna totally forget the example but there's something um i think it's like the last line of the lord's prayer when i moved to dc they said something totally different that i had never heard before i feel like ev i told you about this i was like so rattled with how they Maybe it was like, for, instead of forgive my transgressions or something, you know, whatever, um, they said something else. And I was like, 
what are they saying? Like, what is this? Right. But it was, it was how it was brought to that church from whatever priest, you know, brought it. And I remember writing to a priest who were friends, were very close with his son. And I was like, Father Manny, what, I've never heard this before. And he's like, oh yeah, okay. This is, this is why they say that, you know? But I was like, I was shook, you know, because you're so used to seeing things and hearing things a certain way. Um, and it doesn't mean that it's wrong. It's just so different. It could be so jarring. And I think that's kind of similar maybe to what hap- can happen with things like Greek dance. You know what I mean? You're so used to seeing it X, Y, and Z, and then there's a change. And you're like, holy cow. Like if you're, if you're, yeah, yeah, saw, you know, from the sixties to the 2020s, the difference there, yep. she's probably, she probably would be able to pick out differences that, you know, or, or someone maybe same age or whatever. Um, I, I think that stuff is so cool. Like we learned, uh, you know, different arm holds, right. And they were like, oh, well you keep your arms, you know, kind of tighter. And maybe it's because, you know, the people who were dancing, this didn't have a lot of space because it's mountainous and the church, you know, the platea was like tiny. Okay. That makes sense. And then they, they go someplace else and it's a larger space and that really tight handhold starts to near, you know, and kind of like relax a little bit because it's natural. Um, yeah. I, I think that also the fact that the the platias and the porostasia where dances are done or were done traditionally have changed to kedra in larger areas, it's also influenced. But mm-hmm. it's only natural given the fact that that's how people are looking to express themselves mm-hmm. within those given spaces. It's a different reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I actually remember uh, in one workshop uh, when we were talking about the, the Vlachias from, um, from Naxo. And mm. if I remember correctly, it was in the village of Filoti. In the past, I think it was before the 1930s, uh, the Vlachias were held in a W handhold. Today, if you went and presented Vlacha holding hands like that, someone would say, you don't know what you're doing. Everyone's going to say the arms go on shoulders. But I think it, um, it highlights something else that's very important and Unfortunately, again, it's lacking uh, in the Greek dance world here in North America. It's that there's not enough discourse. Um, people mm. uh, see things. It, it's very easy to judge. Uh, mm. It's very easy to have an opinion. Yeah. But in a lot of the times, we don't sit down to ask, why did you choose to do that? Mm. What did you base it on? Oh, I know this. Would you like to see something else? Perhaps you'll gain a different perspective and, and grow your both your knowledge and, and, and change maybe your interpretation of how you're looking at it. Mm-hmm. I think how did, sorry, go ahead. I think that's incredibly important because there, there, to say that there's one right way to do anything in Greek dance, Greek traditions, I mean, even my family to the next separate family, we might have the same tradition, but we do it this way and you do it just a slightly bit different. And it doesn't invalidate what our traditions are. It's just, that's how I grew up with it. Yep. You grew, I mean, it, and they're all beautiful traditions. And I think it's, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that for everything, especially dance, music. I mean, one musician may play the little riff this way and the other one might end it with just a slight change in the last note. And does it make it wrong? No, it's personal style. It's a little bit of interpretation. It's putting your essence into what you're doing too. So it's great, Evan, that you dive into the musical, the musicality of it. Um, even with music, Aside what we see, uh, let's say, in the horostasi with people dancing and how things evolve and change, first and foremost, there are big differences between 
families that dance and how they express themselves. It's different when you look at it when you have someone that's young dancing versus someone that's older. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously, the, the more you grow up, you learn and you step in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, the same thing exists with music. And the same way that those things are filtered in, in the Horostasi, uh, the same thing happens with music. Like the community itself will filter out what it's willing to accept and not willing to accept. If you take certain musical pieces, and I have this discussion with uh, our clarinetist Peter all the time, we take certain komatia and you're like comparing what they were from the 1920s and the 1930s and their first recordings mm. and the way that they're played today. And, and, and you see the changes depending on the clarinetist that's playing it. They'll say, okay, the, that recording today, the way that it was played would not be accepted within the community. Does it make it wrong? No, it just makes it that it's representative of what was passing and what was accepted and how they expressed themselves musically at that time. Mm -hmm. Do you see like a resurgence of people kind of digging back um, to past times and trying to bring, you know, those things back or, or those sort of like fibers back into present time, especially with music? Um, I think there's a great number of people, uh, both within North America uh, and also in Greece, that, that do concern themselves with that, musicologists and as well mm -hmm. as uh, great virtuosos. Um, another thing I would say is that even from the dance perspective, I think we're going back to try to reconnect the dots. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that over time, there's been a few things that have happened and uh, we have to look at it within a certain context. And that's to say that what we saw, let's say, in video recordings, et cetera, that, or performances from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, today we might say is not representative of what Greek dance is. Mm -hmm. But Greek dance was the base for that, which at the time I would probably think that those traditions and those dances were very vibrant in those communities. So they looked to express themselves differently when they were looking to put on a presentation. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why over time, we get to the, the period that I'll say the last 20 years or so, last 25 years, where there's been a, a very serious um, view on dance and our culture, uh, looking to systematically document it, uh, both historically uh, with regards to recordings, musically, um, as well as changes that they can see from the past, speaking to older people mm -hmm. uh, and villagers uh, that can give a better idea of what was happening and how it changed and why it may have changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's huge. And people who research like you, um, I think are also really important. I don't think there's, I think research is not for everyone. I think you have to be really into it and you have to have a drive to ask those questions and to be like, you know, an archeologist in some ways. Um, but what drove you to like dig deeper and, and to do that research? Because it's, we're, as we meet people through this podcast, we meet people who are like, I love it. And then other people who are like, I'm not the best researcher, but I know who is and I'll tell you, you know? I think the first thing is that as a dancer, I wanted to push myself to be the best dancer I could be. Um, over time, I realized being the best dancer I could be had to be based on um, knowledge, not solely on movement. Mm -hmm. Understanding more 
uh, both the context of that village, the families that live there, people that I may have met, uh, having like visited Greece numerous times and gone to various like, villages of interest, that allows me to understand what it was that they were trying to express. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in such a way, finding my own way to express myself within the context of what it is that they do as part of their everyday life. Because I, I think that's another another thing that we tend to overlook. It's that these dances, these songs, they had a place in their everyday life. Mm-hmm. Guys, I've been, I was born and raised in Canada. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I have, let's say, a second um, contact with mm-hmm. it. Um, because I don't live within that community. I may have a connection to it. Mm-hmm. I may have a connection to the people. But then it's understanding what it is that they feel, trying to feel it myself with, I'll say, authentic experiences. That is to say, mm-hmm. try to visit the village. Try to go to one of their panihidia with people that know how things are happening and try to get a sense of what it is that they feel uh, through those songs and dances. Mm-hmm. I think that's super humbling because I feel like if people saw you dance, they'd be like, oh, he's like straight from there, right? He's he's authentic. He's he's it. And I think, you know, you're saying you're humbling yourself um, and saying like um, second degree from that. You know what I mean? Um, so I think that's that's just a super interesting thought process and um, good for you for doing research and for really connecting yourself to it because there is a lot more. And, and when you know the why behind something or the driving force, it it's going to influence the steps that you take, regardless of how simple something might be or how complex something might be. I'm a firm believer in that. Maria, I think that throughout all the years, and from like 09, I went to Greece uh, for almost three to four months at a time, well, almost mm-hmm. every year. Um, going to the conferences in Preves, uh, throughout Greece, the, the local Silohi um, in and around my dad's town of Leonidio, meeting different people, going up to Konitsa, re- mm-hmm. recording Gledia, dancing with the people there. The ultimate goal of what this is with tradition, in my humble view, is connecting people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fact that we're having this conversation today, yeah. I-, I think that's a testament to what our tradition is mm-hmm. and how it connects all of us. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it. what is all of, all of this dance music it's all about community it's all designed to bring people together to express all the joys and moments in life so it's i mean i i always call it another language this is you know the unspoken language we don't need we don't need words i mean the music has words but when we're on Mm -hmm. the dance floor I mean, that's what I, and I, I always teach that to the kids. I'm like, I don't need to be yelling down the circle to tell you I'm going to do something. Right. <laughs> you're connected. We're, you're, we're holding hands. That is, you feel me, you feel what I'm going to do. I can indicate what I'm going to do with the slightest little tweak of my hand or whatever. And, and if we're all connected through the dance, you're going to know exactly what I'm going to do before I even do it. So... That to me is a beautiful, that's the power of dance is just community and bringing everybody together. Um, and when you, when you experience that, I think that's just like, that to me is the aha Like that's why we do it. I think Evan, what you're saying is wonderful. And I think what you're describing, it shows 
how great a tool dance is and our tradition is that it, it allows for active participation for everybody. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the moment that you're present in that circle and whether you're first in line, ne- dancing second next to you yeah. or, or you're third from last, the fact mm-hmm. that you can see and you can connect, it's something special. Absolutely. So well, you got a question? I was going to ask about La Grafia. Tell us about that. That's a good one. La Grafia. So La Grafia started in 2011. That was our first conference, which, if I remember correctly, you were both at. We were at that, yes. yes. We, we've been to three, I think. of. I, I can't remember. Lord, it's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in essence, La Grafia, uh, when it started, it was not the first dance conference that La Tupsirtaki hosted. Uh, there were five other conferences prior to that. Uh, starting from 1992-1993, if I remember correctly. Um, what happened was that in 2009, I went to the conference in Preveza with one of my co- uh, fellow dancers uh, from Montreal. Uh, I remember at the time that we were 302 participants. The two, the two of us were the only ones there from abroad, <laughs> which uh, uh, was a fun experience. It, it yeah. was unique. Um, it was just such an exceptional time. I remember when I came back, uh, I spoke to one of my um, fellow dancers in the group, and I'm like, Mike, we we have to like try to recreate that type of feeling mm-hmm. um, and just to do it on a consistent basis. So I know at the time uh, there were a few pr- uh, conferences prior that Toronto was hosting with Kironomia. Mm-hmm. Um, so we decided to go on the off year so that at least within the East Coast in Canada, we had a consistent conference happening every May long weekend. Um, obviously, the goal of the conference is to connect people, mm-hmm. um, to learn in the process, uh, to exchange ideas and to create friendships. And uh, through the weekend, through dancing, through uh, in the evenings. And um, I could say I've, I'm really blessed again. I've met a lot of wonderful people. I've gotten to work with them and we've helped each other out over the years, either if it's been preparing for FDF, uh, playing for their groups, uh, and lifelong friendships have been forged through the conference. Absolutely. Yeah. I know the last one that I went to, um, I saw a good friend of mine from years ago from the Sons and Maids, Nico from Seattle, who was on the podcast. I think he was episode 18 or something like that in season one. Um, and then he's really good friends with Costas Mitzis, so he introduced us to Mitzi. And then now it's like, the rest is history, you know what I mean? And it, But that's the feeling at La Grafia, like when you got there was just like a feeling of fun and a feeling of like being home. It was very, it wasn't that I mean, like, yeah. ang- I mean, there was a little bit of anxiety because the instructors are so awesome who you guys bring. So it's like, oh Lord, you know what I mean? But um, it was just such a feeling, like a relaxed, fun feeling. You really got that sense of community. Yeah. That was, that was, that always kind of struck me the most is that like, it just, everything just felt so comfortable, like right off the bat. It wasn't this like, my group's over here, your group stays there, we don't mm-hmm. talk. It was not, it was not that kind of environment. So no. kudos on that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'd say, I'd say fundamentally the idea is everyone to get together. Uh, it's to exchange ideas, to help each other out. We're, we're all striving for the same thing. Um, keep it alive. We want to keep it alive. We're we're a drop in the pond here in North America, mm-hmm. and uh, those that are further involved with maintaining our cultural identity are even fewer. So, 
as long as we could bring in resources, people can get exposure, they can create friendships, they can create those relationships. Um, that's what's most important, like to the point, like I'm very good friends with Nico. Uh, mm -hmm. Many times we were in, actually in the uh, seminars in Previza together, which Costa was organizing. Um, mm -hmm. Again, exceptional uh, experiences up there, uh, both participating, I participated as a musician, um, and actually in 2014, um, Cost and the organizing committee recognized me for my contributions to Greek dance abroad through the organization of the conference mm -hmm. as a musician and instructing. So really, it's we're all a big family. Yes, we're dispersed, right. uh, but um, we're all here to help out one another. Yeah. yeah. So when, obviously, COVID has has changed plans, but what's the future for Lagrafia? Is it going to happen again? It most definitely will. Uh, we were hoping uh, if the if the measures in place lightened up um, mm -hmm. in the spring, we were hoping to have uh, the conference occur later on in the year. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, um, the lack of international travel uh, mm -hmm. has made that extremely difficult. So it will not be happening this year. But we're intending to come back with the sixth conference. Um, I believe it's the sixth one in 2023, uh, stronger than ever. Uh, it'll be there, it'll be a long weekend, God willing, yeah. and uh, we're looking forward to it. Okay, so for everyone listening, 2023, <laughs> put in your calendar. If you're in uh, the U.S., it's like the weekend before Memorial Day. Correct. For us, because it's your long weekend. Correct. Um, so mark it in your calendar. And towards the end of May of 2023, we're all going to be in Canada. <laughs> looking forward to it. That's so, awesome. I'm glad you guys are, are con not that I had any doubt in my mind, but I'm glad that you're continuing with it. And, and I know. think Maria, like, I'll say this as an organizer and to, to all the listeners, COVID has affected us all. Mm -hmm. I understand that. Continue sticking to your guns, do what you have to do and whatever you're organizing prior, if you can make it happen, make it happen. Mm -hmm. It's too important not to continue. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. So now the hard-hitting question. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. What? Um, so if you had to pick one area of Greece that was your favorite, um, what what area moves you the most? What what is the um, what is the thing that just gets you going? Uh, <laughs> instruments, music, dances. Probably to the dismay of my family, I will not say Peloponnese. Um, <laughs> I, I love where I'm from. Uh, I love our history. I love our culture, uh, especially the Zakonian culture. Um, I think what speaks to me most are Epirotica. Mm -hmm. um, I, I won't lie. If I have to get very specific, it'll be Mastorohori and Konitsa. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot of um, different things that have happened over my dance and musical development that have drawn me there. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when we first learned it in 2011 at La Orafia, mm -hmm. it was an exceptional thing. Um, the fact that Nico and Costa Filippidi were from there, I've learned from them mm -hmm. another degree of connection. Uh, and for many summers, I would go up there actually with Costa Mitzi and I would, I would go with a camcorder and document uh, dancers and um, i've met a lot of people there and they're good friends and it's always great speaking to them 
and, and dancing with them. So uh, the music speaks to me. Uh, I think it's a, a lovely blend between um, a more classic Ipirotikoifo that we find mm -hmm. um, with Pogoni and Zagori. So it blends a lot of that, but also with the Macedonian side. There is that influence in the music mm -hmm. uh, and the rhythms, which is like great. So it's just a great mm -hmm. mishmash that makes me super happy. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's your least favorite? <laughs> That's the hard one. <laughs> um, truth is, there's a lot of regions that may not speak to me from a dance perspective. Mm -hmm. um, I do find to appreciate um, all the beauty in each of them specifically. Mm -hmm. um, but like, I cannot... Um, the Bona de Esquedaso, if I could put it like that, for example, mm -hmm. with Sara Catanica. I think they're beautiful. I think they're, it's, the singing is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I, though, as a dancer, cannot express myself through that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. I mean, that's very It's a good valid. way to put it. Yeah. So I don't think there's, I mean, I think for most like diehard dancers, you can't say that you hate really anything. Mm -hmm. It's just, you don't maybe get the same connection. You don't get that same, emotional reaction to it um like if you Cretan, have, i yeah. love Cretan, but it gives me so much anxiety so i mean as much as i'll, <laughs> I'll dance it every time it's you know somebody's playing it, i'll go to the Cretan silo and i'll dance um but it's the region that gives me the most anxiety because i feel like i'm the least prepared for it out of the regions i know you shouldn't Evan. you should not feel that way <laughs> mm -hmm. well, i agree you should have anxiety if you're at a Cretan party and a guy whips out a gun and guns, starts shooting yeah. blanks. That might give you a little anxiety. That, that, that certainly did happens. give me anxiety <laughs> as we all ducked on the like, table. Oh, cool. He's, he's shooting blanks. This like 80 year old Papu is just like, poo, poo, poo. I'm like, oh, that's <laughs> we awesome. We were hoping they were blanks. <laughs> yeah, they definitely, there were no holes, but you know. Actually, <laughs> there's a running joke as of that here in Montreal, uh, one of the reception halls. Sometimes we'd see some bullet holes stuck in the ceiling of the reception halls <laughs> from the Christian Gladiator. And you're like, yeah, they had a good time here. <laughs> yeah, sure did. Sure did. Oh, man. Um, we went to, this is not, I mean, it's kind of Greek dance ish, but we went to, one of the best concerts I've ever been to, and it was in Montreal, and it was Dalara and Hatsiani at um, a Hostas theater. Hostas are theater, probably. Yeah, it was awesome. It was yes. such a good show. Um, the theater people were like yelling at people because we were like up and dancing in like the little you know rows of seats, yeah. and they were just like sit down now. Sorry, <laughs> they were just not <laughs> and I was like, you can't not dance to this stuff. Like it's literally like you can't sit down. Your butt's it's on fire. It's speaking you to you. Dance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but that gosh, that was one of the best shows I think we've been to. I mean, the concert was amazing. The after concert <laughs> will always stick out in my mind because yeah. we were crazy. Yeah. But we wanted to meet Hatsiani and uh, we we, <laughs> we found the back door to the stage and we started dancing. <laughs> And the security guard is laughing at us the whole time. And then eventually he's like, all right, come on inside. <laughs> and he brings us to Hatsiani's dressing room. And of course, you know, my tongue just went away and I couldn't talk. I couldn't <laughs> say anything. I was just like, ah. That was so cool. That was so cool. That was a, that was a great moment in Montreal. Yeah. The concert was amazing. Yeah, that was really good. <laughs> it's definitely a different setting for it, but. So are there any... Um, 
kind of stepping outside of dance music, I mean, this can still be dance and music, but are there any traditions that you practice or that you grew up with that really speak to you um, that you just feel are so vibrant in the Greek culture? So, so again, something super ironic, given the fact that how invested I am in this, I can't say that within my own family or I myself had any particular custom or involvement in upholding certain traditions here. Um, there are different associations that do make, for example, the Cretans will make it a point that they're going to make their tsipodo once a year or, mm. or their laki or... So there are things like that that do occur. I can't say specifically that I necessarily uh, partook in any of them. Let's talk music a little bit. Um, so you play, what instruments do you play? My primary instrument, Evan, is laudo. Okay. Um, I do play dahare when required uh, for the ramina, as you can see actually right behind me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, I dabble a bit with defi. Um, I think just the, the fact that I like Ipiro a lot um, and also the rhythmical nature of the lauto got me to dabble with it. But my primary instrument is a lauto. Awesome. Um, and were you self-taught on that or? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so so uh, I mean, I'm, here's you one have of mentors, the, but. Yeah. So without a doubt, I could say that I, I do look up to Costa Filippiti. He was like my prototype uh, with regards yeah. to mm -hmm. how to play, etc. Um, unfortunately for me, uh, over the years that uh, I started diving more into tradition and music, and more particularly, there aren't an, a great number of uh, Lauto players that come to Montreal, mm -hmm. uh, specifically for anything not related to Cretan. So, Interesting. Yeah, so the Cretans will always bring Lautier to this, along with the Lirati or Violentir, for example, you have uh, Matsaki. Mm -hmm. um, but very, very, very rare would you have uh, a Lautieri come for like a Siloho dance. It would mm -hmm. usually be with a typical setup of guitar, uh, drums, and keyboards. So it's, it goes without saying that first exposure in 02 was like the first time I actually held the Lauto in my hands. Mm -hmm. um, we did the show again in 04 uh, with different regions, etc. We did have the same band more or less come back got another exposure there. Over the years, um, it did happen with the groups of the community uh, here in Montreal uh, that uh, Taki Zodzi did do more shows. Um, he would bring different musicians from Greece. So, okay, you got some sort of exposure, but a lot of it was um, grabbing a book with some fundamental chords, uh, putting on the recording and start mimicking, mimicking, mimicking. Uh, in, in the, and I'll say in the true traditional fashion, it's like, mm -hmm. And if you're lucky enough that you grab like a progression of notes off of somebody mm -hmm. uh, through the years when you see them, like, it's okay, how can I implement that into my playing? Yeah. So, and in, in all honesty, with all of us uh, in VSE, it's, it's been pretty much like self-taught along the way. Uh, we're lucky enough that we do have a lot of uh, good friends that are professional musicians in Greece uh, that we've played with, that we would hang out when we go on vacation. And there are things that we have learned from them too over the years that we've tried to implement in our playing. Yeah, that's, it just blows my mind um, that it's like self-taught and then you, you guys get together and it just sounds like so smooth, you know what I mean? Um, but I, I think I think it's self-taught, but I, I think this goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning, that there's that strong, like innate connection to it too. And I think that can make 
something a little bit more natural when you're trying to teach yeah, yourself. It's coming from the you heart. Know? I yeah. think, in all honesty, Maria and Evan, that one big um, benefit to us as musicians in the band was the fact that we were all dancers. Mm. So a lot of what we were looking to try to play, the melodies and the feeling that we were looking to try to convey was already embedded in us. And as mm. dancers, every time we approach uh, a piece that we're trying to learn, obviously we'll try to make it as um, close to what it is that the doppio would be playing. Mm -hmm. But there are also certain things that we as dancers want and we, we can discuss that with dancers to try to pass it through the song to also give you your fix as a dancer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you love music, you love dance. Where would you rather be? You prefer to be on the dance floor or do you prefer to be on the bandstand? It's a million dollar question. <laughs> There's only one answer here. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably say I would want to pull a lovely move like uh, our friend Vigeli Zimuzi does, and that is I'll start on stage playing with my buddies and then make my way down during a solo to get a couple of circles. Okay. <laughs> I like that. I like that. need Very a little fair. bit of both. That's, yeah, well, exactly. That's respectable. I, I can get behind that. <laughs> right. Um, I have a question that, that might take us down a different path, and sure. let me know if this you know is not something that you necessarily want to reflect on. Um, so when we were talking pre-show, um, my mom first immigrated when she came to North America, she came to Montreal and, um, she was like seven or eight, um, obviously just spoke Greek, did not speak French, definitely didn't speak English, um, and did not have a great time, I think, as a, a Greek immigrant in Montreal. Um, you know, she told me stories about how like school was really tough because it was in French and, you know, like you, I mean... I'm sure she could catch on to some things, but again, she was a child. She wasn't like a, yep. a teenager, so on and so forth. Um, and people might argue that it's easier as a kid, but it seemed like that that cultural immersion was not welcoming at times, you know? Um, how is it in Montreal? Like, does that affect how, you know, you, you said how there's so many different groups of Greeks that have like their little silos and stuff like that. All around the city do you think it's so prevalent because there was kind of a need to hold on to the culture when people came um what do you think about that so if i start with when the first groups came to, to montreal like i know i've read a book uh talking about the first immigration or the first wave of them that came mm -hmm. in the early 1900s mm -hmm. uh and I, I remember very uh, vividly in the book they're talking about how there were Greeks on the 25th of March that were walking downtown with Fustanelis and they're like, yeah. what's happening here? Right, <laughs> what um, is this? <laughs> Invasion. <laughs> over time, and I'll say probably as of the 60s and 70s, mm. um, when that generation of Greeks started emigrating, um, the Siloho was a place that they could meet with their fellow villagers um, mm. and talk about the old country. Mm -hmm. um, over time, the role of the uh, cultural association has evolved. Mm -hmm. um, it, it ended up being a meeting place to discuss and, and just to have that epaphy, that contact. It eventually mm -hmm. became an area of preservation. So mm -hmm. as of the 80s and 90s, those groups looked to maintain the cultural identity and certain customs as they were in the past. Mm -hmm. um, I won't lie, over the last 15, 20 years, we've seen a great uh, number of the Siloji 
reducing. Uh, they've closed either closed up uh, because there isn't a great number of people from that specific area anymore. There is mm-hmm. also uh, intermarriage with other cultures. So mm-hmm. we begin to um, go down a, a road where there's less of a relevance mm-hmm. for the association. I think that here in Montreal, and this is my personal opinion, but it could also point to other cities that the associations have to find a purpose or repurpose themselves to come in contact and be useful for the next generation that might not have the memories of the village to go and talk over a cup of Greek coffee. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and again, the same thing with our tradition, it's part of the evolution over time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there have been a great number of umbrella uh, organizations, not necessarily specific to areas like the community, uh, our dance group, Sirtaiki, that we meet the needs of a great array of people from different parts of mm-hmm. Greece or other areas that maybe were not represented as much. Mm-hmm. Um, Evan, if, for example, there, there's no Cypriot association that I know of in Montreal, but you know what? Within our dance group, we'll take a time, I, I will make the efforts necessary to learn and preserve that cultural heritage mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So. I think that it there's been a, a consolidation, if I could put it like that, of those associations. Um, now, with regards to being Greek within like a Francophone community, mm-hmm. um, as I've grown older, I've realized more and more that um, a lot of what our needs and what our wants are as Greek Canadians or Greek Quebecois here that we are in Montreal mm-hmm. uh, are the same as the Francophones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's actually again once more a lot more that brings us together than than makes us differ or separates us mm-hmm. so it's just a question of like how do we endorse that uh, diversity um, a lot of the cultural events that happen throughout the city will reach out to our dance group to go and participate so they want to showcase uh, the polyethnic uh, mm-hmm. identity of the city and the province mm-hmm. yeah I think it's it's so interesting too because so Evan and I, you know, for the listeners, I, I think we probably have touched on this, although most recently we were both in the D.C. area. We grew up about three hours south of Montreal, like two and a half if you're if you're pushing it, you know. Um, and it's so interesting to go there because you for me, at least, I truly felt when I went there, whether it was for a Greek event or not, that you step into a very European based society. And um, there's so much, for me, there was just so much more connection because of that. You know what I mean? Like I felt um, like the, what I experienced in Montreal with like the Greeks or when I went up there for other events that were not Greek, it was just, it was just so different because you felt like you were in like a little piece of Europe, um, but you were like a, a stone's throw away from your house, you know, whereas in the States, it's, you don't get that as much, you know, you're starting off with a very kind of obviously an Americanized setting and then you step into like the Greek world and it's like kind of so shocking and so jarring to people sometimes but in Montreal it was like no this is it's like we're in Europe this is just chill this is how we do it you know um so it's a it's a cool place um and it's funny to when I talk to my mom about it because I I just think you know at the time she immigrated and, and at her age I think it was probably not she didn't feel that way you know what I mean so um sometimes I think her memories of Montreal are so different because of the experience of being an immigrant and not knowing the language and not you know kind of feeling settled as a child like um, but anyway thank you for reflecting on that because I was like I wonder how it is nowadays but um so for our listeners go to Montreal like you're gonna feel like you're 
in Europe. I don't want to say in Greece, but I mean, it feels pretty dang close sometimes. It's cold. Though. Maria, I like to laugh about it, but we see with uh, with the, my bandmates that if we had the weather of California, <laughs> it would feel like Greece. Yes. Um, what's really funny is that we also laugh about the fact that we know Greek people that may have never have learned English or may have never have learned yes. French. And they've lived here for the last 40, 50, 60 years. <laughs> and they've lived their lives entirely in Greek. Yes. 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 It is like what Astoria was back, like, you know, when my mom was, yeah. when she, she went back to Greece and then came back to North America and, and was in Astoria. And that's what Astoria was like back then. You know what I mean? It was Greek everywhere. Greek at the pharmacy. Greek at the supermarket. Greek at the bank. Um, and it is not like that nowadays at all but i love that i love that there are people in montreal that are just like like i'm gonna do this like i'm in greece i love it go with them that's awesome <laughs> and you're right about the weather but i will tell you guys who are listening um when you go to la grafia don't be surprised it's gonna be hot as hot as hell <laughs> every time i've humid. been it's been really hot <laughs> so i don't know if we bring the good weather or what but <laughs> it'll be warm <laughs> uh. We need to happen a little bit sooner now. We, we need some love. Yeah. <laughs> Get a dose of dance conferences in our lives. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, it was, um, again, you know, Arizona last week ago. Yep. Yeah. Just being able to hold people's hands, yeah. get sweaty, dancing, dancing well into the night. Um, it, just, it was such a powerful feeling again. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely something that's been missing from all our lives. Um, I, the last event that we actually partook in uh, mm. uh, as a band was uh, the last FDF that occurred before the pandemic before. hit. Yeah, we were supposed to go out for another event um, in Los Angeles for the Kinonia seminars. Oh, yeah. But that, that happened as the borders were closing. And as uh, we previously discussed, we were hoping to be in Arizona as well, but uh, circumstances were such that we couldn't commit to the event. Yeah. What's your favorite part about going to FDF? Honestly, the friendships. Mm. Um, we can probably discuss uh, the benefits and, and, and the negatives of competition, but uh, <laughs> truthfully, um, it was by chance that we ended up going with VSC2 FDF. Our first mm -hmm. time at the competition was in 2013. Um, over the years, the friendships like our extended families in California, if I could put it like that, mm -hmm. uh, and just being able to hang out, uh, have a drink around the bonfire, or uh, just discuss yeah. dance or talk about life, that's what's like, exceptional. Um, the fact that there's an event in North America, and I'll see more or less on the West Coast for the Greeks there, uh, mm -hmm. That brings together between three and five thousand people uh, over a weekend. It's it's truly amazing. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's something that as Greeks in North America we should all be proud of and look to foster and support um, because it, it really is something exceptional to be able to touch so many people's lives mm -hmm. with with our culture, the religious aspect, the language, and everything that surrounds it in our communities. So with regards to competition, it's to say that we all don't come from um, a history in our groups or in our communities of that. Um, up in Canada, it doesn't exist. Um, in all honesty, 
Um, the the first contact or understanding of FDF that I had was actually through uh, the instructor Taki Zozi, who actually was a judge at FDF for a, a number of years in the past. Um, we do it just to upkeep our tradition. Mm -hmm. th th that's what it is, and and really to to keep our, our friendships and our experience through that through Greek dance. I entered FDF not from a dancer's perspective, but for, as as a musician. First and foremost, any event that gets that many people, particularly children, together with other Hellenes and field Hellenes is a success and should continue. Yes. Now, with regards to what goes up on stage, and I'll say over the years, I've seen a number of things. Again, I always go back to what is my source content? What am I basing this against? And, and that's where you'll end up drawing your comparatives and having your opinions on, on the matter. Um, the thing is, is that I've realized there's um, a focus to be very specific. Over time, when I was teaching, um, I, I taught for three or four years within a, a Greek school program, and I developed, developed a curriculum there. Um, kids need to learn, first and foremost, how to approach the technical aspect of dance. Mm -hmm. So to, to, to the, what you were saying earlier, Evan, that I'm going through the technical, and eventually, as these kids grow up, they'll learn to express themselves through it. Sometimes yeah. we put the chicken before the egg and we're focused so much more on the emotion, but technically they cannot do what it is that they want to, or within the context of tying it in with the music. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that there's a lot of great work that does happen. Uh, and I'll speak for the West coast. Cause that's where my experiences are uh, with a number of groups. Um, some that win uh, championships or, or sweepstakes mm -hmm. uh, every other year, others, there's others that don't win medals, mm -hmm. um, but they get the kids together, whether they're in college, whether they've graduated, whether in high school. And the only drawback that I could say that that exists is that the moment where the focus is solely on the performance, mm -hmm. uh, the kids lose the context of what role this has within our everyday lives. Yeah. And that is, it's not that, Okay, because I can go dance as Zonaladiko or Asikhtir Havasi for my suite because I'm dancing as Vestades, that um, this ties into my day to day when I go to Dance Arakledi. I remember again vividly one year, one of the groups we were, we were playing at one of the Kledia, and uh, the kids started dancing off the dance floor. And, and it's like, mm. God bless, you learned the dance, and that's, that's, that into itself is something. But now contextualize it. Yeah. Put it within the proper context. And I think that as directors, the more we begin to understand what the dances are and what role they, they met in everyone's day-to-day -day lives, everyone's scenes are going to come together. Putting a performance together will become a breeze. Yeah. Because you're going to realize more often than not, it's not all about showcase dances. Mm -hmm. That is to say, you're going to go to Monastiri or, or Neo Monastiri or, if, or any which one of the, the villages where you have the refugees from Anatoliki uh, Romilia. They're going to be dancing uh, Dusko, 
-hmm. without the testor for half an hour. <laughs> it's not gonna be it's not gonna be half an hour of testo. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna go back to it. So you start to realize, okay, that that exceptional thing that you're looking to highlight ends up representing a fraction of what it is that's actually happening within the context of the dance in its natural setting. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I that again I've remarked is that and I actually I'll 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 put in a, in a parenthesis. I've had these discussions with some instructors in Greece. It's that over time, we don't dance what it is that necessarily we're seeing in the platea or inside, outside of the church, et cetera. We dance and we represent uh, an image of an instructor. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Everybody the same and or we all try to move like an instructor yes so at a certain point in time no my 12 year old kid in my dance group cannot dance like the 70 year old mm -hmm. yeah he should not dance like the 70 year old because right. he's not expressing himself within the context of where he is in his life yes and then you have, you, you see that there's very significant differences sometimes between instructors that teach the same region. And again, it's not to say one is more correct than the other. They're both authentic because mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure each of them dance in a way that's representative of the people and the experiences that they had. Mm -hmm. And at yeah. the end of the day, if there is something that's documented to show that, great. If there's a larger body of work that's done over a number of years with the same people at different phases in their lives, all the better. Sometimes we also fi find ourselves going into this like huge ditch where I have one video and that's my reference. Mm -hmm. I like to think of a, a film, let's say we're taking any region, Carpatho. Uh, mm -hmm. I have a video in Carpatho of half an hour. I'm looking to represent that video for my presentation. Great. What you're going to go and you're going to put on stage is going to be a reproduction of that film. That film, which is half an hour, if we look at it in the, in the grand context of things, represents one frame, mm -hmm. let's say, out of a five-hour film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you cannot get the full context of the film from that single apospasma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and these are just all the types of things that I go through in my thought process um, and I have these discussions with a number of instructors and directors uh, that we work with for FDF. Uh, and then it's a, it becomes a question of how do I tie that in with the music? Mm -hmm. Sometimes what you have in a studio recording may not actually be representative of what's happening in the Horostasi. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a number of things that we've learned um, over the years from different people that we've, we've played with to understand what's happening and, and why things happen the way that they do. Mm -hmm. um, to say, for whatever reason, on a certain recording, or they want to do a recording from X island, there was no Lauto player. So they brought in, let's say they're doing the Vecani stuff, they brought in Konitopolo from the Kiklathes. Excellent Lautieri. Does he represent the style that they play there? Does Konitopolo, if he had to record Kifno, represent that stylistic playing method? No. no, but there's different influences that can have things pass in recordings. And then, for example, this is my reference. So how do I argue that 
as a musician, I'm mm-hmm. here to play what you're asking me to play. Yeah. Yeah. But it's to say that even as musicians, and that was our first, uh, again, exposure to FDF, it's that we end up having to do our own research behind the scenes to fully understand what it is that we're playing within the context of what we're asked to do. Mm-hmm. And I think your point is so important because there are huge benefits to competition, huge benefits, right? The detriment can be very easily unveiled in the instructors. Um, you know, so if an instructor is very specific, this is how you do it only this way, blah, 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 blah. And they're only teaching for competition in a way, in my opinion, you're short changing the people in your program because then you pluck that person out of that competition environment, which is very prescriptive, very, you know, um, uh, uniform, right? That's your goal. And you put them, you drop them, you know, into a a totally different environment. And that's when they feel like a fish out of water. And that, that is when I think I might see people like overcompensating or being so rigid in how they do things. And it's like, this is now like the freestyle, like this is kind of like the, um, you know, to use an analogy, like uh, in the nursing world, you learn stuff in nursing school and then you learn what you do in real life, right? And I'm sure yeah. same thing in the accounting world, you learn stuff in school and then as an accountant, you learn how to make it work in real life, right? Um, as as so, my, my aunt's a nurse as well. And I'll, yeah. I'll take what she says. When you go into the merge, it's another story. <laughs> Bingo, exactly, exactly. And, and that's, it doesn't worry me about competition. I, I think, you know, the experience trumps anything, you know, that I might be talking about now, but that's kind of what worries me a little bit because it's like, if you only teach for competition, because it, you know, you have to prepare for so long, like these groups don't just prepare for like a few months, they prepare their entire season for it. The, the dancers are missing that other part or they have the potential to miss that other part. And that's why, it's so interesting to me that your exposure to FDF was not as a dancer, was that as a musician. And, you know, I think you probably see it very differently. Um, and another reason to reach out and, and to talk to people about stuff. So to, to, if I can add to that, Maria, it's that mm-hmm. originally I started solely as a musician. Mm-hmm. As the years progressed, um, I was actually called out to go and assist uh, different communities, preparing their programs and learning in certain regions. Mm-hmm. So my approach to teaching has always been start with the fundamentals. Let's learn the dances. Mm-hmm. When you learn the dance, understand that it's not just there's said track to said dance. Mm-hmm. In certain cases, there it is the case. But in most most instances, there are multiple songs or melodies that represent that dance. Let's start dancing. And then when it becomes a question of how do I put my suite together? Mm-hmm. Okay, guys, based on the intent of fdf or an hdf this is what i would do if you were telling me let me take these kids and let me prepare them for the festival Mm -hmm. what i would put together might differ in that context versus what i'm looking to put on stage for the purposes of the competition Mm -hmm. everything has its place and its role Mm -hmm. if i could simply put it like that Mm -hmm. and um it's good to have that um, that back and forth. And I, I always have had that um, that open line of communication. That is to say, if I've gone to instruct something, it did not end on the weekend that I finished teaching and I came back home. Mm-hmm. It, it constantly becomes a, 
Send me a recording of what the kids look at, look at, like at practice. Let's look it over. What do we see that's happening here? You'll instantly be able to pick off technical issues. Someone's off beat, they're on the wrong step, so on and so forth. Okay, now let's put it together. Let's look at some videos together to, show, to look at different periods of time mm-hmm. and how people in that area were dancing. Based on what we know, and I don't like to take uh, random videos per se, that's to say like, I like to know the context of the video mm-hmm. that I'm looking at. Okay, I know who that person is in the video. This guy or this woman, they're very well-known dancers in the region. Look at them and try to take what you can from them. And that's to also say, you don't need to do everything that they do, or they might only have one or two different improvisations in what they're dancing. Fundamentally, the dance groups have created super dancers out of everybody. Mm. Today, you have kids that are going out and they're doing 15, mm-hmm. which within the context of the natural setting didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So that into itself is an evolution of our tradition the fact that we have the skill sets and the knowledge in order to be able to do more within any given dance. Yeah. Absolutely. I think um, one of our goals for, for this season is to have a um, podcast with a few people um, who have had experience in preparing groups for competition. Um, and I feel like you would be such a great addition to that because of how you came into it. You know, I think, um, kind of being competition naive and, you know, not participating it in it, probably you approached it with a very different lens than maybe somebody who had grown up in it, you know? Um, so I will definitely be asking you back (laughs) to participate in that. Um, we just have to kind of figure out a day, but you know, it's so interesting to talk to people because, you hear what people who are judges want to see, and it can be so different than what people are presenting. You know, um, like they, they're not necessarily looking for this like crazy, you know, whatever. They, they want that, that snapshot in time of authenticity and they want a group, I think, you know, not being a judge to stand behind what they do to say, here's, how, here's what we, we developed this from, you know? Um, and yes, we're doing Susta three different times with three different kind of flavors to it, but because that's what they would do in the village, because you're exactly right. They don't have like 42 different dances from their areas. They have a few and yep. that's basi- basically it. Um, so super, super interesting perspective. I, I think, gosh, I feel like I can only imagine what you thought when you went to FDF for the first time, like when you saw it with your own eyes, I'm sure it was like, I, I really, I was blown away. Yeah. Um, I think in a way we transport ourselves to like a little Greece outside of Greece when that yeah. during those four or five days. Yeah. Um, I think after the second year, thinking of things in the way that like I, I do, it really became a question of like, okay, why don't we make it a point at the competition to have directors sit down and discuss. Mm-hmm. Yes. Amen. Yes. yes. Why, <laughs> why can't we go and say, hey, I'm coming and I'm presenting Pondo. Here are four or five different people that I learned Pondo from. Right. Guys, what are we understanding from this? Right. Right. I know. Yeah. It's and an opportunity. 
Yeah, HDF, I, I maybe FDF does this. I, I Please, if you're listening, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but HDF has like a director's series where they, yep. they kind of do stuff. They bring people in to talk about costumes. And, um, you know, one person um, several months ago was saying like, you know, not everyone has to have the exact same costume. They don't have to match because that's not how it would be like in the village, you know? Like, sure, maybe most people would be wearing this, but maybe you would have some people who would have a different piece here or different yeah, but the pattern style. on this fabric might be different from this household yeah. to that household. The it was so colors, interesting. It, it could also be representative of their social class. Totally. Uh, and and also perhaps and stage of their life. Yeah. Um, I know a single for, woman versus yeah. a married woman. I, I remember um, when it came to the island of Kalimos, for example, mm. the amount of furia that they have, the three rows mm. of the cupuna, it's the firstborns. You're not going to have a circle full of women dancing with three three rows of fluria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so I, I think as instructors, we're also forced to do and, and become the um, the masters of everything pertaining to the tradition. So you have to find everything regarding the costume. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's really great when there are programs and there are uh, churches or dance groups where they share those responsibilities and they give, they empower others to create teams mm-hmm. to focus on different aspects of the tradition. Because not everyone necessarily has the time to do every single aspect that might be required for putting up a presentation for competition or not. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. Um, so, Peter, let us know if you're interested in being on the competition panel discussion. I I would love to be. (laughs) Okay, good. I feel like it's basically going to be us like throwing out one question and then it's just going to be everyone talking, which is, which is what we want. We want people, you know, to, to reflect and to digest. And, um, I think, you know, people need to hear, hear it because you're never like, we don't know everything and you can try your hardest. And you're exactly right. Like, you know, a a church might not have the resources. Like if you think, I mean, if I think back to like our instructors when we were growing up, it was like the moms who would do this. You know what I mean? And sure, some of them were so driven to learn and and to try to whatever. But, you know, there are some people that just don't have the resources that other communities have. So I think um, hearing the differences in thought with competition and, and the benefits and the, you know, maybe things that aren't as much of a benefit, um, I think would be so valuable to the people who listen to this podcast. So, well, maybe uh, for August, we'll do uh, that. I'll say, Maria, the most important thing is that anything that may be a detractor, if mm. you can take it and turn it into a positive, mm-hmm. that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. So, I, 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 and I don't think that there's anything within the circumstances of what the situation is that cannot be turned into positives. Yeah. Without a doubt. I I truly believe in experiences and like the experience of kids, young adults, even their parents going to something like FDF, HDF, like La Grafia outweighs any possible um, perception of a non-benefit. You know what I mean? Because you cannot... Like that experience can just be, this is going to sound a little bit lofty, but it can be like life changing for people. Um, I truly believe it. So yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> I, I could 
if I just take an example of what we've done within our own dance group, Maria, is that it's probably been a bit over a decade now that, for example, we don't want the financial impact to be mm. uh, restrictive for people to participate or to go to conferences, et cetera. So we make it a point, we fundraise to help support and, and, and break down that barrier because the importance is the greatest amount of kids, I'll say kids now, not to date myself, but like <laughs> the younger dancers to, um, to be able to get access and to experience things firsthand. Mm-hmm. So that should ultimately be the goal. Make it available to the, the majority um, mm-hmm. of your community or your dance group. Without a access doubt. is huge. I mean, if, what's the point in doing all this if if we're only keeping it for an elite, elite few? I mean, it needs mm-hmm. the more it's available to everybody, the better it is for everybody. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. And I think, um, I think that you know rests in the communities that help to sponsor these dance groups. If there is like a church tied to them um, to help support that, you know, financially, and if the dance group is not church based, um, you know, I, I think that becomes a little bit harder, but I also think sometimes you can do more fundraising in those types of groups where you then have like your little kitty, your little like pot of money that you can, you know, offer scholarships or support to people who want to go to things who maybe, you know, they can't afford it or it's just not in their budget, their family's budget to do, you know? Um, yeah, I think, I think it's so critical. Um, I love that. I am so glad you shared your opinion on competition. I'm going to patch that in when we, um, I'll bring it in probably when we started talking about um, FDF. So thank you for that. No that was problem. Perfect. Um, but yeah, so we are trying to get a big group together to talk about competition. Um, we had in my brain, I had thought um, Adi from Long Group, yeah. Long Beach, DC, because um, he's been a judge, yep. um, and, and he also coordinates all the judges for HDF. Um, I was thinking about um, Jordan. Yeah. Um, because I just think his perspective like is so interesting. Um, and then I was thinking about trying to get like, um, some females involved too. Um, I was thinking Lindsay from Sacramento. Yep. Um, and also maybe, I don't know if Stacy, um, Perulis would do it, who is, um, she's like the head of HDF, like the scheduling and stuff like that. I don't know if it would be a conflict of interest for her kind of, um, but just trying to get like kind of the female perspective involved as well. Um, so we'll have to reach out to people, but that's definitely something we want to do for season two. Um, Cause I, I think it's, it's just so interesting. And I, I, I know I had a really negative view of FDF growing up. Okay. Um, mostly because it was like, well, we don't compete. And it's like, I kind of wish I would have been like, okay, we don't compete, but that doesn't mean we can't go to have fun. You know what I mean? Because I think if I would have seen that, it would have been totally different for me. I think that, to, to be fair, even when would go and he would judge at FDF, mm-hmm. there wasn't much discussion of what occurred outside the extent of the competition. Mm. It seemed that everything was very uh, compartmentalized and, and let's say, private leading up to the competition. It was a question of it being presented. And yeah, th- there was mention of there being some Gledia, but it wasn't necessarily the communal uh, accessibility mm-hmm. was not what was brought to the forefront with regards to what the event was. Yeah. 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 
because us two, we, we, we were based on the model, like, okay, we don't compete. Yeah. Okay. But I think uh, on one of the other podcasts, uh, another uh, fellow instructor musician mentioned how, like, even when you go to, like, seminars and, and you're presenting dances or suites at one of the night events, it's, it's a form of informal competition. I, I think at the end of the day, no one wants to be, like, not up to par or or not be the best of themselves. And I think that at the end of the day, all it does is it pushes uh, the dancers and those dance groups mm-hmm. yeah. to, to, to just go one step further. And every time, and the more exposures that they have, the, the likelier that that will happen faster. Like if I go back to when I first started dancing with that kid, like it was two or three with a big group. At that time, in a year, the senior dance group would do somewhere between 40 and 55 performances a year. Wow. Oh, my God. I remember specifically, I was like 17 or 18 years old uh, one year, and we had three performances in three different venues on the same night, <gasps> starting from 5 o'clock and going until like 11. Dang. So, so like, you only get good the more yes. you do it. Yeah. And And... The same thing with being a musician. There's no, um, there's no substitute for the stage time. You could practice all you want, but when you're on stage and you're playing for someone that's dancing in front of you, it's a completely different reality. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think if if I can add uh, just an idea, I, I think what would be really interesting is um, also talking about with musicians about working with groups. Um, I, I know with the guys we've had a, over the years, we've had numerous discussions, mm-hmm. uh, even if you'd want to have it like communally, like different things that we see as musicians when working with dance groups, because yeah. th- there is also the aspect of how we communicate to convey what we each need in order to put out the best product. Yeah. Um, I think that's another interesting thing. And it'll also benefit dancers and dance groups in the long run, because if they end up having consistent vocabulary and we're able to express things in a way that allows for that better communication, Mm -hmm. overall, the experiences for those kids in those groups and in those communities will improve. Mm -hmm. And it'll inherently build more enthusiasm to want to do it more often. Yeah, absolutely. We would love to have like your whole band on if you guys wanted to kind of tackle that. I think that would be like, really I fun. think it would be a, I think everyone would be very much uh, interested in doing so. Yeah. We could have end the CNBC together. That'd be so cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. That'd be awesome. Cause I, I do think, you know, I asked one of the guys um, from end the sea, I was like, how often do you guys practice? And he was like, never. And I, I was like, I had a feeling you were going to say that. And he's like, he's like, we, we just know our craft and, and we get together. And, and he's like, we talk about things, but we don't have like practice session. Cause you know, they live all over. Yeah. Um, and I'm just like, holy cow. Like when you really think about that, when they're in like, there's one, it's one thing playing at a wedding, playing at a party. But a, a more high pressure situation, I'm sure some people would argue that their wedding is high pressure, but competition wise, like, I'm just like, holy cow, like, you guys have to know truly what the group needs. And, and maybe they practice a little bit more in that yeah. setting, but you also have to know how to communicate so much deeper 
you know, um, in that setting as compared to just like, it's just, it blew my mind. I was like, of course they don't practice and they still freaking sound great. And like, (laughs) you know, all this stuff. I'll I'll have to contrast. We probably, we're not at never. Um, (laughs) We're we're lucky enough that we all live within like 15 minutes of one another. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's also an excuse to get together and and just have a good time. Totally. Um, Totally. But there are circumstances, like, especially when we play with, um, for the La Grafia, the last few years, where it's been us as, like, let's say the fun, the, the core band, and then we've brought in other soloists added mm-hmm. on. It's one of those things. It's like, you have to be ready to go when. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, and, and follow it as it goes. I remember in one particular instance when I was in Greece, it had to be in 2014. Mm-hmm. uh with Costa Mitzi. he had booked me for two gigs uh that were happening up in Thessalia one outside of Larissa and I can't remember the second village and um I, I, one of those uh, at that Ecledi, it's like you have the clarino player you have the other singer you have Costa you have uh, Vasily Galani on percussion Yanis Sulti on violi and then there's me out of nowhere <laughs> like who is this guy and he's like yeah it's my friend from Canada he's gonna be our local <laughs> player tonight <laughs> And you're like, okay. And it's like, all right. And then you're like, yeah, this is like a little bit of a pressure thing because like you're in the lines then, you're like in the Horyo, there's like yeah. 500 people here. This is the like one of the three events of the summer. And yeah, the pressure is on. And there, yeah. there's without a doubt a great array of like wonderful musicians like all throughout yeah. the US. And there's a lot of people that are very much masters of their craft. And I'll say even as a diaspora, we're very lucky that there are so many people that play such an area of instruments throughout the, the continent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally I, I'll, I'll just say that, like, I wish growing up that within Montreal or even in Canada, that we're, we had a greater number of musicians. Like, I don't know of any other um, full band that exists in, in Canada. There are some other clarinet players. Um, funny enough, back in the 60s, I think, or 60s or 70s, for about 13 years, Christo Zotto, who's like a, a master lautieri in Greece now, mm-hmm. uh, lived here in Montreal, worked in a restaurant or something, and never touched his lauto. So, right. like, you, you had people here that, like, were masters. Yeah. But nothing ever came of it, because imagine if you played here, someone else may have learned. Yeah. And that would have, like, created a ripple effect of more people knowing that instrument and keeping it within, like alive in the community here. Yeah, gosh, absolutely. And that's stuff you can't teach. And I think, I mean, what you said, I, I couldn't agree with more is, you know, you can teach the steps, but unless you know, unless you, if you're an instructor, unless you master the techniques to teach someone to feel the dance, to feel the music, to express themselves through the dance, like that that's the intangible that we as teachers need to get through to our students far beyond okay this is the step this is the rhythm this is the handhold okay we can teach all that but when you can make that connection to this is this is where you find your motivation this is you know that's when you take it to the next level yeah i totally agree um, Peter, this was absolutely amazing. We will make sure to um, put in the show notes um, if you can actually send me. I, I have your email, but your preferred yep. contact method. Um, we'll drop it into the show notes. So for everyone sure. listening, don't be afraid to reach out. Like, gosh, if we could 
pinpoint a theme that we didn't think we were gonna hit as a theme throughout season one and now into season two is that just, just ask, just ask the question and, and reach out. Um, so thank you for spending part of your day with us. This was so wonderful. Um, and if you all liked this, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and we'll be back next week with more Sue Books.